Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's event. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to our speakers today. Right over here, we have Mustafa Akyol, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where he focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam, and modernity. Since 2013, he has also been an opinion writer at the New York Times. Um, he is the author of several books, including Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, which was published earlier this year. Um, he's also written The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims, which was published in 2017, and Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty in 2011. Um, his books have been translated into many languages and have been praised in the New York Times, the LA Times, The Economist, Financial Times, Wall Street Journals, and many other publications throughout the world, and especially in Muslim countries as well. However, his book, Islam Without Extremes, was banned in Malaysia for criticizing um, the religion police there. The Thinking Muslim, which is a popular um, podcast, recently defined Akyol as probably the most notable Muslim modernist and reformer, something that I wholeheartedly agree with. And in July 2021, the Prospect Magazine of the UK listed him as the world's top 50 thinkers. Today, we will speak to him and Dr. Vali Nasser um, about his recent book, which is Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty. Um, it was published by libertarianism.org, which is a project of the Cato Institute. I would also like, you to, I would also like to introduce you to Dr. Vali Nasser, who is a, one of the most prominent commenters of Islam within America um, and in the state of the Muslim world as well. And Dr. Nasser, Dr. Nasser is the Majid Khaduri Professor of International Affairs and Middle East Studies at the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE. And he's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Center for South Asia. Um, he has served as the Dean of SICE um, between 2012 and 2019. And he also served as a senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. He's also the author of many, many books. Um, and this one is my personal favorite, The Shia Revival, How Conflicts Within Islam Will Shape the Future. He has also written Democracy in Iran, History in the Quest for Liberty, Islamic Leviathan, Islam and the Making of State Power, and finally, Maududi and the Making of Islamic Revivalism. He has advised senior American policymakers, world leaders, businesses, including the President, Secretary of State, senior members of Congress, and presidential campaigns. He has written for the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, uh, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, along with many other publications. And he was kind enough to give um, Mustafa's latest book, Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty, um, calling it um, a must-read for Muslims and non-Muslims alike. So thank you both for being here today. Um, and so Mustafa, I'd like to start with you first. Um, so earlier this year, you know, you wrote Reopening Muslim Minds, um, A Return to Reason, Freedom and Tolerance. And now six months later, we have this excellent book, Why as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty. So can you just tell us a little bit about what is the difference between both of the books? Sure. First of all, thank you, Sahar, for this very kind, generous introduction and for moderating our event. And thanks to Dr. Nasser for being with us today. I'm honored by his endorsement and his support for my work. Uh, indeed, I mean, six months ago, I published Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason and uh, Freedom and Tolerance. That was a more theological, philosophical approach to some of the bigger issues in Islam. So though the people who read that book will learn a lot about Ibn Rushd and Ibn Tufail and Mutazilites and Asharites, and, but how those classical different perspectives in Islam can uh, help Muslim uh, perspectives today. This book is a more diluted, you know, condensed and accessible discussion of 
one single issue, liberty, freedom, or hurria, you know, as we call it in, in Muslim languages. Uh, and here I cover other topics too. For example, uh, I especially go back between Islam and classical liberal tradition. Uh, I go back, you know, between Islamic thought and John Locke very often. Like, do we have a notion of political contract in Islam? Or should governments be based on uh, this idea of a contract between the rulers and the ruled? Uh, or should you obey the ruler? You know, that's a teaching that we find in uh, some texts. Uh, or, I mean, there's a discussion of free markets here, which you don't have in the other book. And there are discussions about late 19th century Ottoman and Arab liberals and how classical liberals who admired constitutional government, freedom of speech, free markets uh, in the West and tried to reconcile that with Islam. So uh, if people ask me which should, book should I read, well, read both <laughs> and, <laughs> because they cover different angles. But mm -hmm. it's all one big argument, uh, I think, about rereading Islam with respect to the sources of Islam, the foundation of Islam, and the tradition itself as well, but also in a modern and new light, because we live in a dramatically different world. And I believe in seeing, uh, finding roots within Islam for uh, cultivating them today. Uh, in the 19th century, when, for example, Muslim uh, intellectuals like Namak Kemal, uh, late Ottoman Empire, they, they, they saw something called democracy and well, you don't have something exactly named democracy in Islamic tradition, but they said, oh, in the Quran is calling us for shura, which is consultation. So that can be the basis of uh, arguing for democracy. And I think the same thing is true for freedom of speech or freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. But you need to do a lot of criticism and rethinking as well. So this book condenses all those arguments in one accessible volume and explains why, as a Muslim, I defend liberty. Uh, so it's an Islamic argument for uh liberalism in the broader sense of the term. Very good, very good. Thank you. And so Dr. Nasser, you um, had mentioned that you had read both of your mm -hmm. um, books. So I was wondering um, if you could discuss basically what you thought um, and uh, Mustafa's comments as well about both of the books. Well, thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be on this panel and thank you for your uh, very generous introduction at the beginning. Uh, I think I, I agree with Mustafa. Both books are valuable, and, and those who are interested in the topic should read it. You know, I, I came to both of these books uh, uh, from the angle that there is now a sort of a given view of Islam, both in the minds of many Muslims, but also in uh, the minds of many uh, Westerners. Namely, this is a particular faith. It's, uh, uh, it says this particular thing. It's kind of been a closed box since uh, 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 the revelation long time ago. And all you need to know is like, what is the short, uh, you know, 14 chapters of the Quran say? I mean, I don't know how many congressmen, media people say, well, the Quran says this, the Quran says that. I think uh, Mustafa's first book in particular brings to the fore that there's a very rich history of debate uh, within Islam itself about faith and reason. And where does one stop and the other one starts? And that there are periods in which uh, the Muslims have intensely debated these issues. And the times that they did these debates, they were not um, answering to Western criticism. It was actually completely internal to the Muslim world. Mm. And, and uh, both Muslims and Westerners ought to know the, what were the arguments, why did the arguments succeed and didn't. And I think it, uh, Mustafa brings to light in his first book very clearly the notion that there, there, there is a strong argument for rationality, reason, reason uh, rational argumentation, whether it's in law, it's in theology, 
and that can lead you to a very different place where uh, than than uh, the definitions that we see. So so I think it's an important book uh, in that in that regard, and it's also a very accessible book. So people don't need to know Arabic languages or or, or other um, other Islamic languages to access this. It actually brings out a lot of these arguments in a very cogent and and, and clear way. This latest book um, I found very interesting. Um, because I think uh, he starts with a very int uh, uh, interesting question, uh, which is, are you free to believe or not believe? Does, does, does God uh, uh, give that uh, right to Muslims? And are they individually accountable for that choice? Because I think the question of liberty starts from there. That, you know, uh, 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 and, and this notion that also is in the Quran that there's no compulsion in religion. So that it can mean that, first of all, there's no compulsion in you being a Muslim and you're responsible directly personally to God. It's not up to the rest of society to sort of ensure that, that you make the right choice. And he has a very nice quotation there mm -hmm. from an Iranian diplomat who says, yes, people can make a choice, but they would be punished for the wrong choice. <laughs> right? uh, uh, but, but, uh, but, so I think that's a very important notion. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very important notion for all religions. You, you have a right not to believe and then is there individual responsibility for your choice, which is between you and God? And secondly, uh, the, the argument that even if you choose to be a Muslim, is there only one way to think about Islam? And that relates this book really to his last book, that there are different ways in which Muslims have accessed uh, the notion of spirituality and religion. And then finally, is, that, uh, 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 is, there, is there a way to think about uh, free market, social liberties, political liberties, freedom of speech within an uh, Islamic context. And maybe there is not a simple answer to say that, you know, it's written in black letter in Islamic text that you have freedom of speech. Um, but, but I think uh, uh, the, the, the book makes a very clear case that there is, there is a lot more room to think and argue and interpret than often is assumed. Mm -hmm. That Islam is not just sort of a, a written, things written in black letter law that thou shalt and thou shalt not. There's a lot of room to interpret things. So, so I think in those senses, it really opens, opens our minds in terms of how we should uh, react to the faith of 1.7 billion people and then how they should also think about uh, their own faith going forward. Those are, those are excellent points. And um, the compulsion element also strikes me as well. I'm a Muslim and I grew up in Pakistan. And so that's something that I think I've seen a lot just growing up in Pakistani society, you know, this tug of war between enforcement and sort of your own individual freedom of how you want to practice. Um, and so I wanted to ask both of you, basically, you know, in usually in Muslim countries, uh, there's a lot of struggle and opinions about how women dress, right? And you actually start off your book um, with a really interesting story of how you were traveling from Saudi Arabia and um, how the women were dressed a certain way. And then when they were going to Istanbul, or as the plane was nearing Istanbul, some of them changed their attire. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that um, mm -hmm. and what does that really mean? And also what does that sort of shift midair mm -hmm. <laughs> mean? You know? Yeah, I mean, I use that story, as you said, mm -hmm. uh, to entertain one important idea in the book, which is, as you uh, well point out, I mean, the, the discussion about religious coercion and the futility of coercion. 
Uh, actually, John Locke makes this argument. I mean, again, when I read Locke 20 years ago, I said, oh my God, he gets it. And these are our issues today. Like if you coerce people to believe or practice a faith, all you get is not real piety, but hypocrisy mm -hmm. and sometimes resentment of the faith. And I mean, and that story, like that was a flight I had from Riyadh to Istanbul, uh, my hometown back then, you know, 13, <laughs> 2013. You know, I got on the plane and this said, Think that most people know. I mean, every woman in, gets on the uh, f uh, plane fully covered. That's the law. That's by law. You have to dress mm -hmm. in a certain way in Saudi Arabia for women. And then uh, while we're getting close to Istanbul, not all, but some of them, you know, went back to the laboratory. They changed. They put makeup and they were looking very differently. And I said to myself, well, if the Saudis are hoping to make everybody pious in, they, in, they way, in the way they understand, of course, does piety entail a certain dress code? That's a different discussion. But what it exactly is a different discussion. They're not even, even achieving that because, mm -hmm. you know, those people are actually looking forward to go to a society where you don't have that. So they're not even creating a sincere religiosity. Uh, and this is just the beginning of a longer discussion, right? I mean... Uh, the, the the verse that uh, Dr. Nasser you know mentioned la din, you know there is mm -hmm. no compulsion in religion that has become the motto of all liberal-minded Muslims in the past uh, several decades I think uh, and I think it's a very powerful statement there is no compulsion in religion it, it is uh, it, it means freedom because freedom is defined generally as at least some philosophers have defined it as lack of coercion right mm -hmm. and if you have a Quranic verse which says there is no coercion in religion that's very powerful however as I show in the book uh, some scholars immediately take an issue with that right. and I quoted a Turkish scholar uh, from the more conservative uh, Imam you know is I don't need to mention his name but people can read uh, he says actually there is compulsion in religion there is no compulsion to the religion but there is in the religion. Mm -hmm. What he makes is that, well, we will not force people to enter Islam if they're not Muslims in the first place, which is generally accepted. And I think that's one of the uh, positive sides of the great Islamic story that, mm -hmm. I mean, Jews and Christians and Hindus were not forcibly converted to Islam right. because the Quran said that and they couldn't you know, yeah, go beyond that. that. But it was minimized, uh, the idea that there should be no coercion to a few with a few insertions in this, which is the issue of apostasy, of course, changing your religion, which I don't think should be a crime at all. It's mm -hmm. not in the Quran, and mm -hmm. I have a longer discussion about that. But the other thing is religious policing and, and checking if people are dressing in the right way, mm -hmm. which, uh, of course, is the, or, you know, if they're drinking wine, should they be flogged? 80 lashes or 40 lashes or, or maybe imprisonment? So mm -hmm. there are those texts and uh, not, of course, all Muslim societies are today, today are living by these jurisprudential texts, but Saudi Arabia is. Mm -hmm. and, and when there's a little bit of reform, it is welcome. There's an amazing you know, liberation in Saudi Arabia, whereas you still go to the jail for right. even chopped up into pieces for criticizing the ruler. So right. it's not really a meaningful, I think, reform there. Mm -hmm. But in Iran, I mean, the compulsory hijab, is, there's a whole movement against that. Right. Uh, in Afghanistan now, we will have the Taliban, of course, yeah. uh, bringing uh, laws on women or other, other anybody in society. And now, but also, I emphasize one thing in the book: this is not the only form of coercion that Muslim women go through. Mm -hmm. There is coercion from the other opposite direction as well, which is most visible in France, right? Mm -hmm. 
if you're a Muslim woman today in France and you're a 16-year-old Muslim girl who's wearing a hijab, you can't go to a public high school. Mm-hmm. You'll be forced to take it off. In Turkey, we had a worse version of that. I was calling it the secularism police, you know. <laughs> like, like religion police, there was a secularism right. police forcing women to take it off. So, and that is also a violation of freedom. Because my argument is that people have the right to be pious as they believe genuinely, mm-hmm. and that can entail dress codes, it can vary austere lifestyles, and that is what freedom means for them. Mm-hmm. But for others, it, it means the freedom to practice Islam in the way they believe it, mm-hmm. or, or you know, they can be heterodox, they can be not religious, they can mm-hmm. maybe be ex-Muslims, and everybody should have the basic freedom to live according to the, the, the dictates of their conscience. And what do our Islamic texts say about this? Mm-hmm. How uh, there are some seeds for this idea, but also some obstacles in medieval interpretation. So mm-hmm. the book the book goes through these discussions with some catchy examples, if you will. And I think you already catch one of those, but uh, we can continue. Yeah. More. Yeah. And so, Dr. Nasser, I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you. You know, being from Iran, and um, so. Like I had mentioned, I, I grew up in Pakistan. Pakistan does not have a compulsory head covering yeah. law, but I, my sense is that it might be moving towards that. Mm-hmm. But for now, there are other laws in Pakistan that are problematic that we'll discuss. But at least when it comes to the wardrobe, um, there are no laws right now with, with Pakistan. But of course, in Iran, um, similar to Saudi Arabia, there are. So can you just talk a little bit sure. about Iran and what that impacts? Uh, I mean, it re- it, the case of Iran reflects on, on, on several of the issues that, that Mustafa raised. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, one issue is, is actually the question of interpretation. Uh, you know, in, in, in original religious texts, it says that men and women should dress modestly, mm-hmm. right? First of all, nobody polices men dressing modestly. Exactly, yeah. uh, it's, only, it's, it's only women dressing modestly. But, you know, the, the term modest can be interpreted, uh, just like the term corporeal punishments yeah. can be interpreted. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I worked on Maulana Maududi, who was one of the original thinkers of Islam, what we call yeah, Islamic yeah. fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. And Maududi believed that until such time that you have a perfect uh, Islamic society and there is no poverty or uh, uh, other kinds of reasons uh, and everybody's been educated in Islam, you actually cannot uh, uh, chop somebody's hand for theft. Uh, In other words, uh, he had interpreted in a Mm -hmm. way to say, yes, we accept that this is in the punishments, but, but the conditions for its implementation are indefinitely suspended, mm-hmm. which is a very different interpretation than, than when a general took over Pakistan and trying to be Islamic. The first thing Zia, he did, yeah. Uh, yeah. General Zia Islamization did of laws. Yeah. So, yeah. so this is important. There is not a one one interpretation. Unfortunately, we're in a period of history in the Muslim world where the more hardline, narrow uh, interpretations have taken over. So, and I think that's very important. So even if we say there is no compulsion to religion, but there's compulsion in religion, but then still there is a gray area there. Mm-hmm, what are you mm-hmm. compelling people to? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that basically comes down to what sort of laws you're, you're reading. Secondly, um, although I, I, it is often said that Islam is cultureless, but that's not true. Islam was born in the Arab culture, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of Arab attitudes from the 7th century, but even today, that are mm-hmm. being basically paraded as Islamic culture, right? So there is a particular, I think, since the fi- uh, finding of oil, because oil be- uh, and the wealthiest part of the Muslim world become became the one that particularly on these sets of issues mm-hmm. was... Well, had a The most rigid one, yeah. most yeah. rigid one, that that essentially, uh, and then through the media, etc., has now been transported out. So Pakistan is a very good example. Mm-hmm. 
that people in Pakistan prayed. They were good Muslims for a very long time, but they mm -hmm. didn't necessarily dress like uh, uh, people in the Arabian Peninsula mm -hmm. do, men or women. And, and they didn't see that as an issue. Women had a, covered their hair, but mm -hmm. not, but not uh, in the way that now they do now. So that there's a de degree of Arabization of Islam, or let's say the Persian Gulf version of mm -hmm. Arabization, because this is not even Egyptian, you know, Syrian, right. uh, Iraqi practice over time. So we have to be mindful of that. And the irony of ironies to me is that actually the countries that are closest to the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, as as allies uh, yeah, are the yeah. ones that are being the, the exporters of the kind of Islam that actually is now being mostly uh, criticized. Now, you would say Turkey or Iran, because of their historical legacies, are more immune to this. Mm -hmm. But Southeast Asia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, there's such an adoration mm -hmm. of, of the Persian Gulf. And also they send workers there who then go back home thinking that it's actually a market of wealth to dress like Saudis or to observe things. So that dynamic is there. Uh, the other issue is which falls into Iran, you know, the, the, the sort of weaponization, I would call, of women's dress actually mm. happened under Kemalism, mm. right? Uh, both and in, the first shock too, actually. And then, yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. First in Turkey yeah. And, yeah, then, then, and, then, yeah. and then in Iran. These were yeah. the sort of, in the yeah. 1920s, right. were two experiments in the in the Muslim world, which basically said the path to progress is to completely disconnect from Islam, mm -hmm. and you have to, by the the state is in charge of forcibly changing the individual. Mm -hmm. So men have to wear different different clothing, and and uh, in Turkey there's a hat law. Yeah, and yeah. in Iran, and in fact, they both believe that this was put there <laughs> to prevent them from praying because mm -hmm. your head cannot hit the ground, oh. uh, and women were forcibly. Defraud. I mean, in Iran, it actually became quite brutal. In 1935, mm. the Shah sent the police to forcibly remove the veil. And uh, there's a whole, I mean, there's stories of a generation of Iranian women who never left their house mm. after that because they felt, you know, immodest and, and naked and, and all of that. Later on, it was relaxed a bit. But, the, but, but just like the, the Shah in Iran re, uh, made, made change in women and men's dress, the first marker mm. of, of change, the very first thing that the Islamic Republic did was to remove that. And one of the very first people they executed in Iran after the revolution was a 90-some-year-old old general who mm. had been in charge of the troops that stormed the mosque in Mashhad, pursuing protesters mm. against unveiling. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at it, uh, Reza Shah was the name of the king, removed the veil mm -hmm. and Khomeini put it back mm -hmm. on. With men's clothing, they couldn't do anything other than just <laughs> make, make men's dress in Iran basically just a negation of Western dress yeah, yeah, yeah. because that, that, that tradition had been lost. Yeah. But, uh, but this idea, and I think that we, we've, even though Kemalism has weakened in Turkey in recent years and in Iran it was toppled, Mm -hmm. How deep this idea of, of, of state engineering of the yeah. individual as a means to progress and change has, has sunk into the soil. So even, I would say, fundamentalists like Maududi and, and others, they, they took uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk's, not, not his ideas, but mm -hmm. his method. That the Islamic Republic in Iran is essentially a Kemalism in reverse, mm. and 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 just like you know, Turkey is going towards that towards direction, that direction <laughs> too. But 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 I think Mustafa is absolutely right. Coercion ultimately doesn't work, and this is a very big question uh, for for Islamic fundamentalism. And and Iran is a perfect case because Iran is the one place where an actual 
uh, Islamic movement of that kind took over other than Taliban, Afghanistan. Mm. And, and you're seeing that particularly with generational change that, um, you know, a voluntary support for it, for, for these edicts is, 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 is loosening. And that if and 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 uh, if um, Islam is being force-fed to the population, then it's also responsible for all the shortcomings of the government, and therefore opposition to Islam means secularism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, so it, it, in a way, the, the whole uh, the whole sort of circle has come, mm-hmm. uh, 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 yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. To, to to a full. Yeah. And 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 that's why also the women's issues at the forefront of these issues because yeah. this has now become the the lynching. But 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 I but I also want to say this that. You know the the even the 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 symbolism of of women's headscarf now mm-hmm. is a very modern thing. It was not this political, yeah. and it was yeah, not yeah. this steadfast, and is now penetrating in societies that historically didn't observe it in the same way. Right, and this is really more about not about the religion; it's more about the dynamic of state society uh, relations that have been happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm very happy to uh, yeah, hear the emphasis you made on uh, illiberal secularism, as I can put it, that we've seen in Iran and, 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 and Turkey for sure. And I just want to make sure that that's not what I'm arguing for. I mean, the, <laughs> for In the minds of some people, I mean, liberalism and secularism are almost interchangeable mm-hmm. terms. Right. Well, these terms mean what we mean by them. But uh, what I m- mean is a medium of freedom where people are practiced to f- their religion mm-hmm. in the way they deem fit and mm-hmm. or not practice and not believe or or th- and the state is neutral towards the citizens mm-hmm. that's a and that is secular but it's a kind of secularity in the anglo-saxon tradition right. which really emphasizes the protection of natural rights and mm-hmm. the limited government mm-hmm. unfortunately muslim world has almost never experienced that i mean what we have experienced is french style secularists yep. even more illiberal than france i mean turkey went way beyond france in terms of bending that scarf right. uh, i mean with all the respect to france but you know their secularism is not always very liberal right uh, and then you had the islamists and you mm-hmm. know going b- back and forth so uh, i think the way forward is which will bring peace to everybody is a basic idea of freedom and, yeah. and that's what this book is about and that's actually a great segue to a question that i have online and for those of you who are watching thank you of course for tuning in but also um you can certainly ask your questions by using the hashtag cato events and you can submit your question on our web page on facebook on twitter and it'll come up on my trusty ipad and i'll be able to ask the question so i have a question like that here for for both of you and, s- and since you both have discussed sort of you know enforced piety and illiberal secularism, etc., like the role of the government, basically. So the question I have, um, it's from an anonymous person here that asks, must the government structure be agnostic for liberty to survive? Or can there be a free theocracy? What do you think of that? Uh, the term agnostic is, I think, for individuals, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I mean, the government doesn't have to refer to a religion and shouldn't, I think, refer to any religion. Right. So it should be secular. But 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 ag- agnosticism is taking still a metaphysical stance on the big issue of whether there's a God or not. I mean, mm-hmm. the government doesn't have to take any of this. Right. The government exists to protect the rights of individuals, period, and the safety and you know of, of society and the orderly mm-hmm. working. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- the, a theocracy, by definition, is incompatible, I think, with freedom because it will inevitably uphold one belief over another. But I should also say that the term theocracy isn't always exactly 100% relevant to Islam because in in classical Islam, 
you don't have the I mean, theocracy implies that the ruler is somehow divinely guided or in classical Islam, actually, the ruler wasn't considered like that. Mm -hmm. But the divine law, which is the Sharia, mm -hmm. was considered as the foundation of the state. And actually, in my book, I show that this mm -hmm. had a positive impact, too, by the way. Right. I mean, in, in classical Islam, you had you have many stories, which I relate in the book, that a ruler doing something unacceptable, tyrannical, mm -hmm. and the scholars of the Sharia, Islamic law, say that, no, you cannot do this. This mm -hmm. is against the Sharia. And since the law is above the ruler, the ruler has to sometimes stop. He's constrained by that structure. Right. Uh, but ultimately, when you have a religious body of law, like the Sharia, or it could be the Halakha, or it could be Hindu teachings. I mean, yeah. if you make that the supreme uh, guide of the state, mm -hmm. where we have a better model in the modern world, which mm -hmm. is a neutral state that protects rights, mm -hmm. that is a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but this doesn't mean that our religious traditions cannot be interpreted in a way to support the idea of a, mm -hmm. a state based on contract. Mm -hmm. And and in the book, I go discuss, you know, Prophet Muhammad's peace be upon him, you know, contract with the tribes in Medina. Right. Uh, where, I mean, that's, he made a contract when he arrived in Medina mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. Jewish tribes there. And the definition of the state, that's very nascent, you know, small right. states there, isn't actually Islamic. I mean, right. he, the, the, this is a Medina state. People here are one ummah, one nation. To Muslims, their religion. To Jews, their religion. And this state is about protecting uh, all of us. And if it's attacked, we will defend it together. Mm -hmm. So. That base, that's actually a neutral state, right. basically. So we see that in the very beginning of mm -hmm. Islam, mm -hmm. which for historical reasons I discussed actually right. didn't define the political trajectory, unfortunately, of the Muslim world. And you know, Islamic supremacy, as I put it, yeah. uh, became more uh, definitive until the modern era. Yeah. I hope this makes sense. I don't know. Uh, absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think what you really, what, what the question is really argue, asking is, is can there be a state that, uh, uh, that, that, that respects diversity of opinion mm -hmm. and diversity of practice. And uh, I think that's uh, also a lot of it is the function of the state itself, as well as the function of, uh, of, of, of the religious interpretation mm -hmm. uh, uh, that is there. I mean, uh, um, it's not just Kemalism that, that has been intolerant. Many states uh, around the world, even to this day, don't tolerate a divergence of opinions, let's say on nationalism. Mm -hmm. Or on varieties of issues, so uh, so in some of in some ways, you know, uh, particularly Islamic activists, fundamentalists have internalized what is a, 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 a sort of a modern world's uh, ideas that are all exclusionary. So if you thought about modern nationalism, communism, mm -hmm. fascism, all these isms yeah. are, uh, are, um, are are basically intolerant <laughs> of alternate views. It's all mm -hmm. about us and them. And, the and traitors, I, you know. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> and I, and I think, uh, um, and again, this goes to this book. So you know, when when um, uh, a, a lot of these debates about Islam in the modern world took place, let's say, World War II uh, era or earlier, the points of reference that Muslims were looking at in the West was not democracy. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were looking at, at at these rigid states that were emerging in France and Germany, or mm -hmm. Peter the Great in Russia, which is, you know, one way. So, so I think, you know, the importance of Mustafa's book is that it, it, it's time for the Muslims to have a different kind of reference point and to yeah, engage yeah. in debate with modernity of today, not the modernity of the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And modernity of today is really about uh, political openness and economic openness. Mm 
So uh, 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 the struggle of modern world is really between state and society everywhere. Whether it's Myanmar or China yeah. or yeah. Or, or, uh, or the West, or even in this country, we talk about, uh, you know, how much can the government, should the government regulate or right. not regulate, right? So, so I think that's, that's the really appropriate way of thinking about it. And I think both his last book and this book uh, provides a lot of tools for how the Muslims ought to think about, uh, not, not how they can create rigid systems that mimic, mm -hmm. you know, uh, European systems of the 1930s, but how can they actually create plural systems yeah. that is more approximate uh, the West that they live in. And I, I think particularly it's very important for Muslims um, living in the West, which mm -hmm. is not quite sizable, mm -hmm. about terms on, under which they integrate or, or live, in, live in societies that they, they are, mm -hmm. because they, they confront that, that a very different, a very different modern world than the one that uh, a lot of these rigid texts were about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. And um, you mentioned that there are so many Muslims who are living in, in Western countries, and you definitely see that struggle too, especially when you have sort of in a larger space questions being asked about Sharia, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, if you're a Muslim, do you believe in Sharia? And I've been asked that question, and I don't really know how to answer that. Um, yes and no is that I feel like that's a non you know answer um, and so my question and this actually um, I have a few questions on here about um, apostasy and blasphemy so I'll just combine the mm -hmm. questions for, for you but my next question for both of you um, and I'll start with Mustafa first is um, you mentioned you know rethinking Sharia this is something that you talk about mm -hmm. um, in this book um, and also in, in a previous book of yours so can you talk a little bit about what do you mean by rethinking Sharia and in the book you um, Mustafa had started actually the chapter on a really heartbreaking story from Pakistan about a woman who had been raped by her brother-in-law because her husband was in jail. Um, and she went and finally reported it. And the police basically said that they, they basically said that she had no evidence that she had been raped, even though she did get pregnant and she had a child from, from that incident. Um, and the police eventually, basically, she was jailed for that. And she was told that she needed four witnesses to show this crime. And she was eventually released from, from prison. Um, and this was a story that I personally had followed very closely because um, I was living in Pakistan at the time. I was a teenager and I just sort of had discussions even with my own father about this, like, how is this possible? that this woman is saying that this has been done against her and she instead has been put in jail for this. Um, and a lot of this discussion was about, you know, rethinking Sharia and what, where, do, where do the laws of zina come from? Where do the laws of these, you know, four witnesses come from? So I wanted to um, ask you basically what, yeah. you, you, what you meant by rethinking Sharia sure. and then also how that sort of applies to our modern world. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, first of all, when people ask, like, do you believe in Sharia? I, I say, yeah, I practice Sharia. I mean, <laughs> I refrain from pork. I pray towards Mecca. And, you know, yeah. to me, these are Sharia, right? right? Because Sharia, just like the Halakha in Judaism, defines mm -hmm. partly your personal observance. Mm -hmm. And there's no problem with that. I mean, I'm going to steal that answer. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, there's no problem with that. I mean, right. uh, but when you come to the issue of public law, penal code, mm -hmm. You get into these texts uh, of Islamic jurisprudence, which says, you know, adultery should be stoned to death, mm -hmm. uh, which is not in the Quran, but, you know, comes from a hadith, you know, that, which is uh, used to you know, establish that or other some corporal punishments mm -hmm. and regulations about women and so on and so forth. Now, and apostasy laws, blasphemy laws. So there are burning issues, there are problems. Right. So we should be honest about that. Now, my fundamental argument is that these injunctions in classical Islamic law about women, about adultery, about morality, and all that. 
They were legislations made in a certain historical context, which often made sense in its own context. Mm -hmm. But if you bring it today and make it the state law, you will end up in doing terrible things, mm -hmm. which is what the Pakistan example that I you mentioned mm -hmm. is illustrating very, very dramatically. So mm -hmm. that's why I, I began a chapter with that. The story is uh, Zafran Bibi, a, a woman in rural Pakistan, she first got raped. Mm -hmm. When she went to court, she was given the death penalty for adultery. Mm -hmm. So why did this happen? I mean, she was ultimately saved, but why did this happen? Still, it was a tragedy. Because Pakistan Islamized its laws in the beginning in the 70s mm -hmm. under uh, Zia, General Zia, Al-Haq. And this was done in such a crude way right. that the consequences were not really thought. What they did was, uh, in Islam, adultery is... Zina, it's known as Zina. It's adultery mm -hmm. and fornication, so both premarital and, and extramarital sex. And the punishment for that is actually according to the Quran, lashes, mm -hmm. but not stoning. But the key issue is that four four witnesses are required for it. So mm -hmm. if you're going to punish somebody for Zina, you need four witnesses, mm -hmm. which, as I show in the book, the original intention was to protect women from accusations of adultery, mm -hmm. because Prophet Muhammad's own wife Aisha was accused unfairly mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. uh, for adultery, mm. and the Quran said, no, you can't blame women, you have to bring four witnesses for right. this. So since it is such a shocking thing, you can't just throw that uh, witness. And the protection of women is clearly the intention in the mm -hmm. Quran. Now, what the Pakistani legislation did, they, uh, they brought this adultery law. Mm -hmm. They didn't think of rape as a separate category. They, rape was defined as adultery by coercion, zina mm bil -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. So this, the laws that are applicable for adultery were also applicable for rape. Now, mm -hmm. this turned everything upside down. Because right. in the case of rape, you have a woman who says and comes says, I am raped. Mm -hmm. And they, ask, they say to a woman, show four witnesses. Of course she can't. <laughs> and the man gets away with it. Right. Plus, if she gets pregnant, her pregnancy becomes an evidence mm -hmm. that she committed adultery. Mm -hmm. So this was, and, and there were several cases in Pakistan, as I mentioned, and this is the perfect example of, or like a tragic example, of an injunction in the Sharia, which had a sense and, and well intention in its original context, mm -hmm. uh, beamed to 21st century, legislated in a country without understanding the intention and done in a crude way and mm -hmm. leading to horrific human rights examples. So that's that's the beginning uh, mm -hmm. of the chapter, why we need to rethink the Sharia, and we mm -hmm. should stop thinking of Sharia as a state law. Mm -hmm. uh, it's practice, it's piety, uh, a woman can wear hijab, that's, that's Sharia for her, but it's not going to be implemented by the state. And since Muslims will never agree on what the exact Sharia is, because you know it, it depends on Hanafi mm -hmm. being Shafi or right. Jafari or, or, or Ismaili or modernist, you know, there's a let the state be away. Let the just state protect uh, human rights and mm -hmm. natural rights. And 
Muslims follow Sharia in the way they understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you can even have Sharia courts as they have in the UK, which is mm-hmm. arbitration. You know, it's not like a penal code. Right. Uh, just like halakha is in the modern mm-hmm. world. I mean, today Orthodox Jews observe halakha in, mm-hmm. in a modern society. It's their choice, and mm-hmm. uh, they don't eat. Uh, they eat kosher. It doesn't mean that the society shouldn't eat kosher. <laughs> right. So they, they they can practice in the way they want. I think mm-hmm. that's the right approach to the Sharia. Mm-hmm. Of course, Sharia has a historical role on, in governance and all that. But in the other chapter about the book, mm-hmm. uh, about that in the book, I make the argument that that was all about protecting justice mm-hmm. and constraining rulers. So mm-hmm. that should be the goal. Uh, and actually, there I show a parallelism between the Sharia and liberalism, right. in the sense that both ideas are believed in the are based on the belief that the rulers, mm-hmm. people with political power, should be constrained by a set of uh, law that is about them. Right. And and uh, so that's that's a lesson from the historical experience of Sharia I, mm-hmm. I, I extract. Yeah, Doctor Nasser, what are your thoughts on? No, I, I agree. The only thing I would I would add to uh, Mustafa's points is that, uh, and, and the last point to be said that you know the, the guidance for uh, many interpretations of the Sharia or law has mm-hmm. been justice, mm-hmm. and and uh, and I and I think in the case uh, in Pakistan case, uh, the clearly justice was not the mantra. Of the judges, so very narrow, literal reading of mm-hmm. the text without any interpretation or having the notion of justice in, in mind. Secondly, uh, 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 I, I think the, um, the the other point he made is very important that Sharia is not actually implemented with the same vigor on all issues, <laughs> right? So, uh, in other words, um, you, you know, there, there's specific issues that it's implemented that even in the case of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Whether it was uh, chopping of hands or it was adultery was not implemented against uh, the middle class or the or the elite, even though mm-hmm. when it was brazen, yeah. it right. was it was it was implemented selectively against mm-hmm. the most helpless and the poor poor members of of, of society, mm-hmm. and so and that and that raises uh, uh, questions. And right. then again, on a lot of things, uh, there is a lot of room for interpretation. Right, right. I mean, I, I, one, other, one way of thinking about the four witnesses is that, particularly in the context of when this was put, put down, is that it's an impossibility clause, mm-hmm. because it's almost impossible for yeah, you to yeah. find four witnesses, which means that you won't even prosecute the case, right? Yeah. right? You would say, there are no witnesses, nothing's happened. That's not, that's not good for the, for the women, but... Mm-hmm. But but in a sense that uh, that uh, 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 but but this judge basically uh, interpreted in a particular way, mm-hmm. and 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 there's room for interpretation. Particularly in, in Shia Islam, there is even more room for That's interpretation. Right. Uh, right. And, and the individual ayatollahs can can give a ruling. It's an issue that we're not. It's not unfamiliar here mm-hmm. when you know it comes to constitutional yeah. interpretations. Here is it literalist. Mm-hmm. Or is it, or is it, uh, you, or can you interpret some of mm-hmm. the issues that we're fighting in this country over? Much like the Sharia were established at a different period in American history, like mm-hmm. the right mm-hmm. to bear arms, right. uh, you know, was was consecrated in the Constitution where the when the government in the United States could not provide basic protection to people. Right. So you were you were deputized by the government to be essentially take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. But is that something that uh, that is is unchanging, unchallengeable today? 
So, uh, so I think that's exactly the point mm. that that law has to evolve with times and right. has to make sense and has to be about justice. Right, right. And so my one last question that I have, and I wanted to make sure that we touched on the concept of economic liberty, as you discuss in your chapter as well. So um, you start the chapter by telling the story um, of a gate in Istanbul's famous Grand Bazaar, which is fantastic. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Great. You visited Istanbul. I, I did visit yes, Istanbul. Yes, 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 yes I did. I mean, yeah. millions of people visit Istanbul, <laughs> and they many of them probably go to Grand Bazaar. Yes. Um, in one of the gates of Grand Bazaar, mm-hmm. there is a Arabic, beautiful, you mm-hmm. know, green on gold engraving, and mm-hmm. it writes Al Kasib Al Kasib Habibullah, mm-hmm. which means those who earn money are the friends of God, or God right. loves those who earn. Right. And what is this? Well, this is saying a hadith, you know, mm-hmm. coming from Prophet Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why did Prophet Muhammad said this? Oh, he himself was a merchant, and he mm-hmm. has other hadith saying, uh, praising actually the honest merchant. And mm-hmm. he, there's also a saying that people he established Medina, and he said the first thing he did was to establish a market, and said mm-hmm. there will be no taxation in this market. Right. And uh, and then people came to him at some point and asked. Like, the prices are too high. Can you fix the prices? And he mm. said, no, only God fixes the prices. <laughs> so there's this very interesting yeah. business-friendly, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, uh, approach in early Islam, particularly coming from Prophet Muhammad's profession before mm-hmm. he was a... Uh, also, the early Muslims, too. I mean, Quraysh, mm-hmm. his tribe was a trading uh, right. tribe. And and that allowed the rise of a pre-modern Islamic capitalism, mm-hmm. which was very successful for its day and age. And mm-hmm. Muslims invented some... Uh, finance techniques which made its way to Europe. For example, the word check comes yeah. from the Arabic word sak, which is a written document. Mm-hmm. So in that chapter, I give these kind of uh, some highlights to argue that the idea of a free market economics is, isn't alien to Islam. Mm-hmm. Ibn Haldun made a theory of it, and mm-hmm. that's why he was the pioneer of the Laffer curve, or Ronald Reagan referred to Ibn Haldun in his speeches for some you know, uh, issues of taxation and so on and so forth. Uh, what happened in the modern era is like, I mean, some problems in Islam are, they're traditional problems, and so there are some modern solutions, but there, there are some th- traditional blessings and some bad modern solutions. What happened in the 20th century is that we had a un- previously unheard of idea called Arab socialism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this engagement with a more Leviathan, like a mm-hmm. big state that will organize everything and mm-hmm. dominate the economy, take over foundations, which were mm-hmm. private before. So that was a wrong model. And mm-hmm. some of the problems in the Muslim world are have traditional roots. Others mm-hmm. come from bad modernization. And, and I, I criticize this uh, state-centric mm-hmm. economic approach mm-hmm. that came either in the form of uh, statism in Turkey. In Turkey, it was called statism. In Arab world, it was called socialism. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, Bali has books and very important uh, perspectives on that. Like right. the, the way forward will be economic liberty as well, as well as personal liberty mm-hmm. and freedom mm-hmm. of speech and political freedom uh, in the Muslim world. Yeah, yeah. And Wally, what, what are your thoughts on sort of economic uh, liberty? Just to add to what Mustafa said, you know, uh, often dealing with the developing world, uh, when you can't explain why societies cannot progress or, or are regressing, re- religion becomes sort of a, a easy way of, of, of uh, uh, explaining it. Mm-hmm. I, I remember a time when the argument was that uh, Asian countries cannot develop because of their Confucian mindset. And then we reached a point where actually the Confucian mindset became the reason for their 
for yeah. the for the mm-hmm. uh, Now there are probably Weber said that actually. That's right. right. That's Weber right. Weber said that. Weber was great on many things, but, but he got but, something uh, wrong. But uh, <laughs> but but then you know we say that there are actually Koreans, Japanese, uh, Chinese mm-hmm. uh, that work ethic yeah, is actually yeah, yeah. beneficial. So I think we have the same thing about uh, Islam uh, in the sense that uh, there are many other reasons why Muslim societies have not done well economically uh, and, and that the Middle East, for instance, is lagging behind other regions of the, of the world. And, and it's not necessarily uh, can be easily explained based on based on the faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there are certain issues that, that, that in the modern period have become a problem, like uh, the Muslims. Uh, not wanting to pay interest, and and, re- mm-hmm. and and although I think that's open to interpretation, what it is, but mm-hmm. the irony of ironies in the Islamic Republic of Iran, it, they actually decided that they cannot run an economy without without some way of uh, putting a price on money, mm-hmm. and and the economy is too big to have you know one interest free bank and and make it work. So so in a in a in a basic way, Iran does pay interest. Right. In its banks, and and it, it functions very much like uh, the other economies. Now they found a way, and this Shiites might have it easier than Sunnis mm. to interpret this uh, uh, and and move forward. Which which tells you that when push comes to shove, the law can yeah. change, and right. it's not immutable. Mm-hmm. Uh, some things in Iran have not changed, but uh, uh, and in fact, uh, I may have gone backwards looking mm-hmm. to the past. But some things, uh, you know, have have evolved as a result of uh, of, of exigency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you know, there is ample room to think that if there is freedom in choosing your faith, in, mm-hmm. in how you practice your faith, if there is pluralism of ideas, mm-hmm. that then it also applies to to uh, pluralism of economic uh, activity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's a good point. And so um, I wanted to also ask you, um, and we have several questions here um, about this concept, but I'll just sort of combine them all into one. Um, and to me, also, one of the most intriguing chapters was, uh, you know, is liberty a Western conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. Is the concept of liberty something that just came from the West and that's something that's so foreign to Muslim countries or to the Islamic world. Um, and we have a, a few questions here basically asking why is it that um, in, in, in Muslim countries um, or why is it that European countries do not accept um, more liberal movements? Um, the, one um, commenter has asked why the Muslim Brotherhood was not accepted um, in Egypt. And so if both of you can talk a little bit about that, why is, why is it now in today's sort of world, when we think of liberty, the first thing we think of is that it's a Western concept. Mm-hmm. And where did it start in Islam? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a double-edged sword. Right. And, and, and as, I, as I explained in my book, uh, yes, in the modern world today, Muslim world, if you go speak about civil liberties, freedom of speech and religion, liberalism, you know, mm-hmm. oh, that's a Western thing. And right. there must be Western agenda behind that, mm-hmm. like a, a colonial agenda. Mm-hmm. And I say in the book, well, there's Muslims are partly justified to think like that because right. Napoleon invaded France uh, in the middle of the 19th century, beginning of the 19th century. And he said, I brought you freedom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then France colonized Algeria. And they said, we brought freedom to your woman. And actually, one wise man in Algeria asked, then why did you bring so much gunpowder? Right. <laughs> so right. colonial powers used the idea of bringing freedom mm-hmm. And the last dramatic example of that was the Iraqi occupation. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was called Iraqi Operation Freedom, right, Right. in 2003. And uh, it remains in the minds of a lot of Muslims with the tortures in Abu Ghraib and Mm -hmm. a lot of Mm -hmm. terrible things. So this doesn't mean that freedom is a lie. 
this just means that it's a value that can be instrumentalized by sometimes by some powers for their own interest. Mm-hmm. We should oppose that instrumentalization, but we should not oppose value, mm-hmm. the value mm-hmm. of freedom. And mm-hmm. that is precisely why what the Islamic liberals did. Mm-hmm. Is, I, I, I have long quotes in the final chapter from Namu Kemal, mm-hmm. who was the he was called the New Ottomans. I mean, mm-hmm. these were. Islamic intellectuals, they were pious Muslims, but who admired Western constitutionalism mm-hmm. and tried to reconcile. Hayreddin mm-hmm. al-Tunisi, Tunisi mm-hmm. from Tunisia, he was he was the first actually full-fledged political liberal in the sense that he argued mm-hmm. for freedom of government, uh, freedom of speech, uh, a free economy, mm-hmm. and then he went back to the Sharia and tried to reconcile them. So Muslims need freedom not because there's a colonial agenda, right. but for our own selves, that we mm-hmm. don't oppress each other. We have thriving societies. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, West can be an example and a model when mm-hmm. it is uh, worked in that sense. Mm-hmm. But when it comes with drone strikes and wars and that sort of thing, it can, it's a problem. And that's mm-hmm. why uh, if Muslim war will go forward, it will happen thanks to not more wars and conquests and more you know, violent conflicts between East and West, but mm-hmm. with, with more integration, with mm-hmm. more that's why I have a slogan, make yeah. capitalism, not war. Right? <laughs> make business with Muslim societies and, and not any more endless wars. Right, right. right. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. no, I agree. I think, I think Mustafa put it very well. Yeah. And so I have one question here, um, you know, from our audience members. And again, for those of you who are um, watching online, thank you. You can use the hashtag Cato events and also submit a question on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube as you as you watch along. So the question here is um, more about sort of the history of Islam um, and whether or not Islam was more accepting of liberty during Islam's golden age. So um, my question to you is, what do you think the Islamic golden age is? And what does that mean? Well, for the Islamic world? Golden Age generally refers to from the 8th to the 12th century, uh, especially Baghdad, but mm-hmm. also Cordoba and you know the great Islamic mm-hmm. civilization centers where Muslims engage with philosophy. You know, it was a universalistic civilization, trade, mm-hmm. capitalism. You know, mm-hmm. where, and 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 more more freedom of thought as well. I mean, I, I have a chapter on free speech, right. and I remind that I mean the uh, the Abbasid Caliphate had an institution called Munazara, uh, um, like for salon of debate, Majlis al Munazara. Uh, where they were bringing Muslims and Christian theologians and saying, discuss, and the Christian theologians, you're f- free to do, say whatever you want. Right. That opened, I mean, it was not as liberal as today. Right. But for its time, it yeah. was actually the most liberal civilization. Mm. And it's not me who says that, Bernard Lewis says that the classical Islamic civilization gave more freedom Mm-hmm. to uh, the people uh, compared to the contemporaries. Mm-hmm. That's why Jews repeatedly fled Christendom to the classical Islamic civilization, which mm-hmm. had more freedom for the mm-hmm. Jewish people mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Uh, compared to the Inquisition and all that opposition. Mm-hmm. What, what happened is unfortunately that that classical Islamic civilization stagnated and didn't move mm-hmm. much in the mm-hmm. past few centuries where the West in the West liberty flourished. Mm-hmm. And when Muslims saw the onslaught of modernity, they mm-hmm. even became more reactionary, some of them. And right. we had these radical mm-hmm. movements, which shapes Iran, which shapes uh, the Taliban and other uh, troubling movements in the world today. Right, right, right. You have thoughts? I, I think it's, a, it's I, I agree that, that mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the golden age is not very early Islamic history. Right. But the golden age is, is uh, let's say, the, 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 the uh, Islamic empire in, in, in Spain. 
the, the, the empire in Baghdad, even in, in, in Istanbul under, mm, yeah, the, yeah. under the Ottomans or the Safavids, the height of the Safavids or the mm-hmm. Mughals in India. And in each of these, you see high culture, mm-hmm. product, tremendous production of uh, the, the very best sort of uh, literature, arts, music uh, uh, in the Muslim world. And I think it's marked by, by uh, a few things mm-hmm. which uh, are important to note. One is it's an era of confidence. Mm-hmm. So there is, yeah. this is, so, so, you know, these, these rulers at the height of their power mm-hmm. at that moment were confident in their own shoes mm-hmm. and that, uh, and so they were not, you know, either threatened by, by the West or but they were not in defensive mode. You know, the problem with today's Muslim world is, uh, per Mustafa's last uh, answer is that we're in a defensive mode. Right. right. We we were sort of circling the wagons against Western attack, and mm-hmm. the more attack comes, like post 9/11 after yeah. Muslims, the more right. we circle the, the, the wagons. Whereas in those periods there wasn't that. Second, there was no conspiracy theory. No conspiracy <laughs> theories, and then these these people were rulers of the world in the way right. they saw it. Right. Secondly, they, 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 there was uh, there was a period of, of, of willingness to engage culture mm-hmm. and be open to culture. So, mm-hmm. you know, you had these great emperors in India who, who uh, basic like Emperor Akbar or who, yeah. who had, a, had a Hindu wife, a Muslim wife, mm-hmm. a, a Christian wife. And and uh, and they actually sought uh, ways in which to to coexist and merge and marry Islam to Hinduism or mm-hmm. in, in the case of. The Ottomans with with their Christian subjects, or uh, and and so so that created a kind of kind of cultural effervescence, mm-hmm. which demanded a, a, a more open interpretation of the Sharia than the rigidity of no, we cannot do this and we cannot do that. Right. So it's, it was a period that the boundaries of Islam was opening right. towards new ideas, new modes of arts and 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 music and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that's 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 what's lost. In other words, uh, yeah. in other words, uh, th- that confidence doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and and therefore uh, that that openness doesn't exist. And yeah. that freedom. And that freedom exist. doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you both for today, and thank you all for um, tuning in and listening in to this great discussion. Um, for those of you who have not, I would urge you to read this book, yeah. whether or not you're Muslim. I think this is an excellent book to read, especially if you want to know more about where Islam lies in terms of liberty. And if you're a libertarian, I think this is definitely a worth reading. <laughs> so and thank you so much. That they can buy the book, but also yeah. libertarianism work freely uh, allows a download. Yes, yes. yes. You can PDF, download so. it, um, a free PDF, for those of you who are environmentally friendly. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you again, Mustafa and um, uh, Dr. Nasser, thank for you your time. Much. Thank you.